Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed.
Well, that's a great word for this morning. And um, as I come here this morning, one of the things I just found out is I left my sermon and sermon notes in my office. So I am truly learning the lesson of walking by faith and not by sight this morning. And uh, so let me just pray, and uh, we will see what the Spirit brings to our hearts this morning. Lord, I'm just very thankful to be here with my brothers and sisters and that we could honor and bless our, our mothers and uh, for those who have lost loved ones, in particular uh, whose moms are with the Lord. And we just pray that those grieving um, would be comforted by the Good Shepherd. And then we just ask, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in us here this morning. We're thankful for you, Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you are able to do what we're not. And even in this moment, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will illuminate my mind and heart to the things I have thought about and the way that they have been put together and crystallized. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to speak to each of our hearts this morning. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the beauty of your word. And we thank you for the drama of your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And now we ask, Holy Spirit, that this word will speak to us deeply. Truly, in this moment, I am emptied of any of my own human resources, so I just pray for you, Holy Spirit, to come with power. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as um, we're beginning this morning, just uh, to give people an idea of where we're at, we have been, over the last number of weeks, preaching out of the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the things that we've... Uh, been looking at is we're looking at uh, not just that this is the carpenter's son, but this carpenter's son was the promised Messiah. He was the king that was promised. He was the one who was going to bring in salvation and his kingdom. And we've been learning over these last number of weeks that we are to see Christ and to see him in all of his glory, but more than all of his glory, we're to see him in his humanity and learn from him in his humanity the way that we are ourselves to live in this kingdom with new hope and with sorrows moving into joy, with a, just a, a sense of we now know Jesus and we're growing intimate with him. That's our goal as we've been going through the Gospels. And last week was chapter 13, and Josh was speaking out of, the, out of chapter 13, and that was the parables. It was a whole chapter of parables. And uh, Josh emphasized and focused on the parable of the soil and the seed. And he ended that by basically saying, hey, guys, where we're at for the most part is we're the third soil. And as the third soil, one of the things that we need to see is what is it that we treasure? Ultimately, the question is, what do we treasure? Do we treasure the things of the world or do we treasure Christ? And, And he moved us into prayer for that. And we began to just cry out to the Lord that the treasure of our heart would be Christ and the things of this world uh, would fall away from us. They would no longer be idols that were hindering us from having a relationship with the one who is the treasure, Jesus Christ himself. And so we move today into chapter 14 as Barb read. And and chapter 14 is, is this wonderful piece in the middle of the gospel. And you may not notice it when you first look at it, but it really is a day in the life of the disciples and Jesus. It's a day in the life. It's a 24-hour period, Matthew 14 is. And in that 
life that day is all this drama. Now, I know you don't have any drama in your life during the day, do you? No, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the day in the life of Jesus and the disciples out of Matthew 14. And we're also going to be looking at how does that then talk to us about in a day in the life of a believer, of us who are living right now. And that's sort of where we're going. So we're going to look at this. And the first thing we see is there's uh, Matthew has given us some background. He basically says, um, right now, what you need to know is that John the Baptist has died. And um, rather than just leaving us with that idea that John the Baptist died, he goes into telling us how this happened. He, and it's gruesome, right? I mean, it's, it's just this, this horrible story. I mean, you could have it on any type of uh, movie that we showed today. It was, it's a horrible thing that happened, right? We know that John the Baptist was imprisoned because Herod the king uh, didn't want him speaking out about the marriage that he just had with Herodias, who was his brother's wife, and basically stole his brother's wife and now was married to her. And John the Baptist was speaking out about this, and he was telling people that this was wrong. And his wife, Herodias, she was so upset about this, and she wanted John dead. But Herod said, no way, I'm not killing a prophet. Um, I will keep him in prison. Well, she has a plot. And so there's a big feast, a big banquet. And uh, literally during this banquet, as everybody uh, has been, you know, they've been drinking and everything, uh, she has her daughter, Salome, dance in front of King Herod. And literally he promises her after this dance, because it was so pleasing to him, that she could have anything she wants. And unbeknownst to him, the mother had already prompted her to say, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so he can't lose face. So what does he do? He goes and gets John beheaded. And he's literally served on a platter. So this is the gruesomeness of what happened. And the, it says the disciples came and took his body, and they buried his body, and then they went to tell Jesus. And that's where a day in the life starts. Jesus early in the morning, is told by the disciples of John the Baptist that he is dead. And this is sad news for Jesus. This was his cousin. He grew up with his cousin. They played together as kids. And then his cousin became the prophet, the forerunner of him. He preached in the wilderness, and he preached repentance and baptism, and literally... He was, he was the one who baptized Jesus to start his ministry and said to his followers, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the forerunner. So you can know that Jesus grieved this. And the hearing the gruesomeness of what happened, he was very sad. And he's also a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to him. There was a deep sense of that in him as he saw what his mission was. And so what does he want to do when he's sad and grieving? He wants to get away. Like anybody, he wants to get away. He, he, wants, he wants to be with the Lord. He, he wants to grieve. And so he's been in Capernaum, which is his hometown, and he's been preaching there, and he's been healing there, but he's found a lot of opposition in his hometown, where he says a prophet has no honor in his own country. There's a lot of opposition there. 
And so this happens, this news happens, and all this has been going on, and you can just see his heart is troubled, and he just wants to get away. He says to the disciples, let's get out on the boat, and basically what they're going to do is they're going to travel across uh, basically to a place that's desolate. Now, now you need to know about the lake, right? The lake itself at its, its widest part is eight miles long. But where they were up in Capernaum, at the head, you could basically see it's about, it was about a mile. So let me, I have a map here. If you could put the map up, that'd be great. So you can see the map. You see where Capernaum is, okay? So I went from Capernaum to, you see uh, where it says multiplication of the loaves and fishes? Just below Bethsaida is where they were headed in, the sh- in that boat. And literally, you're going to just dock over there. But it's... People can see, right? So all the people could see where Jesus was going. It wasn't that hard to see. And literally what they did was they ran across there because they knew that Jesus, where he was going. And literally, because it was only about, I think it was about four miles or something, a little less than that, they literally beat Jesus to the spot. That's how desperate the people were. How much they wanted to be with Jesus how they knew that Jesus was going to bring healing. He was going to teach truth to them. And literally, they went from there. And this was a desolate area uh, where we were at. And if you could put the next picture up just to show you a little bit more uh, about that. So when we begin talking about him walking on the water, uh, basically, that's what we're talking about. They were about halfway. And that's how Jesus walked from that area to the water, just so you can get a picture when we go to that piece. But so here they are. The crowd is there. He's out on the boat. You can take the map down now. Uh, they're out on the, and he's out on the boat and literally sees the crowd as he's coming up. It's a desolate area, so they've traveled there to see Jesus. And here is Jesus having heard this news. He's grieving. There's so much going on in his life. And what does the Scripture say about Jesus? It says he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. In all of that grief and all that was going on, when he saw the people, he had compassion. And if you remember back in Matthew 9, when Jesus looked at the people, he said, these people are harassed, they're helpless, they're blind, and they're hopeless. And that was his heart, and he couldn't just stay in the boat. He couldn't just say, listen, I need time by myself. No, he went to meet the needs of the people there. I love what, uh, in that quote that we have there on your outline in Spurgeon, he says, his compassion was great. The original word is very expressive. His whole being was stirred to its lowest depth, and therefore he proceeded at once to work miracles of mercy among them. He worked miracles of mercy among them. That's what he did. And it basically says that he did this all day long. All day long, people were coming and he was healing and he was meeting with people. And then it's starting to get close to evening. And the disciples begin to notice, wait a second, we're in a really desolate area and nobody has anything to eat out here. Uh, There's no fast food restaurant that we can go to. Uh, there's, there's no Costco's that we can go grab a whole bunch of stuff. So, Jesus, we got a problem. 
the people are going to need to eat. And how do you think Jesus responded? How did Jesus respond? It's really interesting. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no, maybe we... No. He says to the disciples, will you feed them? <laughs> Can you imagine? Wait a second. Jesus, we're coming to you because we're saying there's an issue here. You're saying feed them. So they begin to try to do, in John 6 it tells us, they begin to do some things. Uh, Philip begins to figure it out and finally says, Lord, we don't have enough money to do this. And even if we did, there's not enough food in the villages around here. We're going to be able to get enough food to feed everybody. And then uh, they, they basically go out and they find one young man who has five loaves and two fish. And they bring him to Jesus and they say, well, this is what we've got. And here's the amazing things Jesus said. Well, that's all you need. Didn't you know? Just bring what you have, and I'll, I'll do the rest. Just bring what you have. Basically saying to us, sometimes we want to do everything with our own human resources. But he's basically saying, no, bring them to me. Bring it to me. And so they bring, as we know, the loaves and fishes. And it says that Jesus prays to the Father, and he does something else. He takes the people... And it says 5,000 men were fed. So that means with women and children, there was probably between 10 and 15,000 people there. Get this picture. 10 and 15,000 people. Could you put that picture up just to get a feel for it? So here they are. He sits them in groups. About 15,000 people lined up like that. And literally what he was doing was preparing a banquet. Like, he, was, he knew what was going to happen. He knew he was preparing a banquet. And literally, now, it doesn't say how it happened. People have all kinds of crazy ideas of how it happened. Now, I don't know what your idea is. Uh, but the next thing you know, the disciples are going, and they give out food. Everybody gets the food. So I don't know if every time they went into the basket, there was another fish and another loaf of bread. I don't know how it happened. Or there were, all of a sudden it just filled up, and then when they got to the end, it filled up again. But however it happened, literally, all the people were fed, and not only were they fed, but listen to this, everybody was satisfied. There was 12 baskets full left over that they went to pick up. And, and so there's this sense that what was going on there, so Jesus was sort of, He's the new Moses, as we found out. The new Moses was reenacting the manna in the wilderness as he fed all these people the way God fed all of those in the wilderness for we don't length of time every day. We have this picture, but even more, it's a pointing to the wedding banquet of the Lamb at the end of time. It's this beautiful picture that's taking place there. And, and it's just Wonderful. And this is what's happening in the midst of this. All these people are, are being fed, and it's just amazing when you think about it. Think about this feast. Jesus is the master of ceremonies. The apostles are the waiters and servers. The food is supplied by a miracle, and everybody is satisfied. Isn't that what you want at any of your great feasts, banquets, wedding baskets, Giuliani's, when they serve it? Don't that's what we want? That's what we want. But that's what happened there. How powerful is that? Think about that for a second. 
Now, if you were in that crowd, what kind of reaction would you have? Well, the crowd had a reaction. What the crowd wanted <laughs> was they wanted Jesus to be king. That's basically what was going on. And they were like all murmuring around another that we should, we should make him king. We should make him king. And Jesus knows this is happening. And what we know about Jesus is he always avoided this idea of them making him king. He addresses that, not in Matthew, but in John he does. And so I'm going to read to you what he says to the people in regards to them wanting to make him king. If you could put that up, John 6, 26 through 35. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? The works of God requires... Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then he dispersed the crowd. And in the same manner, he told the disciples to get in the boat and go back to Capernaum. He didn't want them to be involved in any of this king nonsense. And finally, he had an opportunity to be alone. And it says he went up into the hill to be with the Lord. It was a time for him to be with the Father to grieve the loss of John. It was a time for him to feed his soul. It was a time for him to, to ask God what was his will as they moved forward because he knew his time was getting shorter. So it says that, so probably evening came, so he was probably about six hours in prayer. And then it says around the fourth watch. The fourth watch is from three to six o'clock in the morning. And it says, he basically does what? He gets up, and so it's a spring night. Uh, we know from the time that it was written, it was a spring night, and um, a lot of times during a spring night, the moons are bright. And one of the things that we... we hear about in the, in, the, in the scripture when he's speaking about this is that the disciples have been struggling all night long. A storm had come up and they had been rowing against the wind trying to get back to Capernaum and they're only about halfway out. So Jesus gets up, he's on the hill, the moonlight's shining and we know that it's not that far so he can see out there, disciples are still struggling. Six hours in and they're still struggling. So what does Jesus do? What Jesus does. He has compassion. He says, well, I better get out to them, so let me just walk on the water. Oh, okay, no problem. Here they are in the middle of a storm, and what does Jesus do? He walks out. He walks on the water. How amazing is that? He's walking on the water, and there's, can you just picture this. There's moonlight, and so there's a silhouette, and now I'm in the boat, and we're struggling, and we look in back of us, and we see this happening, and what do the disciples do? 
they begin to scream in, in terror because they think it's a ghost coming after them. And as Jesus gets closer and he sort of hears that, he says to them, be of courage. I tell you, do not be afraid. It is I. I have come. And gosh, I can't even imagine how that was for them as they're hearing that voice coming out of there. Um, But Peter, who's always the impulsive one, basically says, if it's you, Lord, bid me come out. And he says, come. Now, remember, what Peter's asking is, let me walk on the water. Right? That's what Peter's asking. Because if he says, come, it means, let me walk on the water. And um, so, basically, he begins to walk on the water. Put that first picture up. Here they are. And there's, there's Peter walking towards Jesus on the water. You can see the storm, the waves coming up. And Peter is walking to Jesus. But what happens? What happens is it tells us that all of a sudden, one of the waves splashed against his face and all of a sudden he was distracted from focus on Jesus and he began to get worried about all the circumstance around him and what happened to him? He began to sink. You can put the next picture up. And he yelled out, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. And what does Jesus do? He picks him up, brings him to the boat. They get in the boat and everything goes peaceful. And he says to Peter, you have little faith. Now everybody thinks, oh, just, you know, look at Peter. No, he had faith. What he meant by little faith was, he meant that in the midst of the storm, rather than keeping your focus on me, during the adversity, you took the focus off of me. And so your faith dwindled the moment you took your, your, your face off of me. So you began to have little faith because you began to take your focus off of me. It took great faith to walk out of that boat. And so what happens is the disciples do what? They literally worship him. What would you do? They worship him. He's amazing. He's walking on the water. The moment he gets in, the storm stops, and the next thing we know, we're in Capernaum, like, This is amazing. This is Jesus, but he is also God, and they worship him. So that's the day in the life of Jesus and the disciples. That was quite a day, wasn't it? So how about a day in the life of us who are believers? What does it look like? You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, as as believers in the Lord, living in today's world, we hear sad news all the time, do we not? We have a 24-7 news cycle that just blasts all kinds of hardship that's going on. But even more than that, in the, in the world that's broken like ours, we experience sadness in things in our own lives, things that happen. You know, there's, there's hard things that take place. There's, there's, there's people who are, are grieving because of loss. There are hard circumstances. Um, there's, there's just so much of, of our lives where um, we're, we're prone to move and want to be alone. And, and here's the thing that I think we need to know, is that what this story tells us is that Jesus has compassion. So we, when we're in these areas where we're despairing and, and where you know, we feel isolated and, and you know, circumstances seem to be overwhelming, what Jesus says is, 
I haven't left you, right? I'm, I'm interested. I have compassion. I step in. I'm interested in what's going on in your life. I'm interested in moving in uh, to your desolation and to your despair, to your grieving, to your hardness, to the hard circumstances of your life. I'm not moving away from that. I don't leave you as orphans in this world. I leave you here, and through my spirit, I am with you in this context. So in, in the midst of all of that, know that you have a God who's compassionate and, and, and is never, ever not willing and ready to step in to where we have great need. That's who Jesus is. That's who our God is. And he steps in to this with compassion, just in this beautiful way. He, he comes in and he says, there is need in your life. There is need in your life. And I'm here to help you. Don't try to do it on your own. Why are you always trying to do it on your own when you can't? Why would you not come to me with what you have and let me work with you so that I can love you in that way? I was thinking about this. And, and the simplest things, right, from the simplest to hardest. So three weeks ago, we get ready to do the container. And you know, guys, for 16 years, we did a container every year. We were like a well-oiled machine, right? For 16 years, everybody knew April and May, have your boxes ready, have your clothes ready. Everybody was ready to do it. And we literally had this system, and we, we, we did 700 and some boxes every year. We got it out. So here we are three years later after the pandemic. We haven't done it. I'm there on Saturday, the first Saturday. We look back. We have very little resources. I have to send everybody home. We have nothing after about an hour or so. And what does Angelo do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Where are the resources that I have to make this happen? What in the world? We are in trouble. This machine is broken down. Nobody even remembers that we did this. And I, my, my, my panic was setting in. And I'm, I'm like, there's nothing I can do. And then basically, why don't you just start praying to God? Why don't you begin to ask him to help you? And I remember I started praying in the morning. Lord, you know the situation. I know that this is on your heart and you know the need. And then the Holy Spirit just said, well, Andrew, what about that warehouse you used to work with? Why don't you give them a phone call and see if they have any winter clothing? And my flesh comes in and goes, no, the winter clothing's away. They're not going to have it now. Bop, 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 bop. Maybe you should call. So I call. I start talking to Ed, who's the guy who runs it. And I said, Ed, you wouldn't happen to have any winter children's men and um, women's clothing and shoes. He goes, you know, Ange, it's funny you say that. We just packed up all of our winter supplies. Now, all of this is brand new stuff. It's all still in the plastic bag. He says, and we have about eight to nine pallets. You think he can use that? I said, well, how many boxes is that? He says, oh, it's about 130 boxes, somewhere around there. I'm like, yes, I'll get the U-Haul. I will be right up. I mean, literally, can you imagine? We went from nothing to we had over 120 boxes of brand new women, children, and men's clothing. And I began to see, yes, this is, this is my Jesus. This is the one 
who says, come to me when you're in need. Now, that's a very simple thing, but it's a day in the life, isn't it? And we all have those types of things going on in our lives. But let's talk about some other things that we struggle with, whether it's anxiety. I'm, I'm having real high anxiety. Maybe there's something going on in my family. And I realize I have no control over that anymore. I'm dad, but I'm not dad who has you 24-7. I'm dad who looks at you as an adult, and I see things happening, and I have anxiety about what's going on. And where do I go with that? Well, I go to the Lord, and I pray, Lord, first of all, I, I lay them before you because you are the one who's able to help them in a way that I'm not. You can speak to their hearts. You can change the circumstances. I have to lay it with you and, and give me peace in doing that. And I bring it to him, and in his compassion, he begins to speak. Now, sometimes, brothers and sisters, when we're like that, we need other brothers and sisters to come along around us, don't we? And so God does that. He literally has other people come alongside us and help us and encourage us. And he uses the body of Christ in the same way because we're all one in Jesus Christ. And so begin to think about how you interact with need and how God comes and comforts you and recognize that he will always come if you're willing, if you're willing and available and allowing him to step in and saying, Lord, this is what I have. Please do what I can't do. And the God of compassion will do that. And in 2 Corinthians 1, we have this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from Christ. Amen? He is the God of compassion. He comes in. But, but then he goes one step further, and, th and this is where he spoke about being the bread of life. But not only does he meet those needs and literally may not meet them in the same way that we want, but he's always moving. Because one of the things he says to us is, know for sure that I am the bread of life. And as the bread of life, I have answered for you all of your greatest needs. I have taken away the sting of death. In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, because what has he done? He's taken away all our diseases. And what he's basically saying at that point is, sin is the greatest disease. Sin brings death and separation from God. Sin brings destruction in relationships. Sin brings all the horrors that we experience in this world, all the alienation and isolation. Sin brings it, and I have cured it because I am the bread of life who was broken for you. Hallelujah. And he heals all our diseases, and he restores us and gives us more than we even know that we need. He sustains us. He is the bread of life. And so, brothers and sisters, when we begin to struggle in the storms of life, when we begin to struggle, I'm sure that even right now, some of you are in a great storm of life. Whether it's sickness, whether it's depression, whether it's addiction, whether it's hopelessness, and we can go on with the list of all the storms that we experience in life and we're struggling with in these storms of life. Here's what we need to know, that he is with us in the midst of it. 
that he has not left us. He is with us, and he's waiting for us to come. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of pride, so the Spirit has to beat me a little bit. Basically, has to wear me down sometimes, because I still think I can do it on my own, rather than come. And I come, and he's right there in the midst of it right there in the midst of the storms of our lives. Brothers and sisters, we need to know this deeply. In our everyday life, who is there in the storms, in the struggle? It's Jesus. And I love what William Barclay says in that quote. In life, the wind is often contrary. There are times when we are up against it, and life is a desperate struggle with ourselves with our circumstances, with our temptations, with our sorrows, with our decisions. At such a time, no person needs struggle alone. For Jesus comes to them across the storms of life with hands stretched out to save and with his calm, clear voice bidding us take heart and have no fear. Brothers and sisters, in the storms of life, Jesus is there calling out for us to come. He will deliver us from our fears. He's calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. And so you have that quote there by France. Doubt is literally be divided in two. True faith is a single-mindedly focus on Jesus. Satan, one of his greatest things is to have us doubt God loves us, that God is able to help us, that God is there for us. One of the great things he does in his accusation is to say, how can you be forgiven? How can God be around you? One of the great things he does in his lies is to say God doesn't care for you. But we walk by faith because we know who Jesus is. And when we begin to doubt, brothers and sisters, we need to go. We need to go to Christ. Not run. Don't buy the lie. We need to fix our eyes, turn our eyes on Jesus. And so I want to share this little story with you to give you an idea of what this really looks like. 1987, I took a group of teenagers to the Yucatan Peninsula. We went into the jungle, and we were building a dormitory for a hospital there. And um, it went great. God really blessed it. And on the way out, uh, we, had a, we had a stop in Cancun uh, before we get our plane the next morning. So we got there around 11 o'clock out of the jungle, which meant that we had the whole day at this hotel in Cancun. And, of course, everybody was excited about that. So we're there, and it has this really big pool, and everybody's around the pool. And you ever have those pools that have those, like, uh, rope planks to go across the pool, and people try to walk across them, but they're about, they're about that big? Have you guys ever seen that in a pool? Well, this pool had one like that was 25 yards long. It was like really long. And so what people do, of course, is that everybody gets around there and everybody starts doing water and people are trying to do it and everybody's falling off, right? So we got the youth group there. There's about 20 of us. And, of course, the, the athletes, you know, we, we're going to do this. We're going to make it happen. And we get up there and they're doing, they're doing the waves and all that type of stuff and we're just falling off. All of us are falling off. And two of, of the younger girls in the group, I think they were either 15 or 16, every time they went, boom, across, 
across. And all of us guys now, we're like, this is getting embarrassing. Like, this is ridiculous. What's going on here? And so we're all trying to make this happen, and we can't make it happen. We're just all falling off. So finally, we're all sitting down, and we, and we just say to them, guys, how are you doing that? I kept thinking, oh, they're gymnasts or something. There's some reason why they're doing it. And both of them, both of them said, well, we never look down. We always look at a, something right on the cross there, and we just keep looking at it. And basically, they make it across. And, and literally, what they did was they focused on one point. They never looked down, and they went across without any problem. And isn't that the way we're supposed to with Jesus in all the storms of life? We're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to focus on Jesus. We're to walk by faith as we walk at Jesus and turn our eyes on him. And Hebrews tells us that. If you can put the scripture up, that'd be great. Hebrews 12, 1, 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Brothers and sisters, we fix our eyes on Jesus even in the storms of life, and we will not grow weary and lose heart. And how do we do that? We spend time alone, as Jesus did. As he did with the Father, we do with the Father and Jesus. We spend time alone. I want to encourage you, we have to be in the Word. We have to feed on Christ. We have to know the promises of God. We need that speaking rather than the evil of our world. The world, the flesh, and the devil are speaking 24-7. They're bombarding us with all of this stuff, wanting us to doubt, moving us away from God, thinking there's all these other things. But then the word of God comes to us and says, this is who I truly am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. All the promises are yes and amen in me. Come to me and know that. I have the spirit. Unleash the spirit in you. Know me. Walk by faith. But we have to go. We have to go to the word. So yes, you're going to hear Israel say again, do it in the morning. Do it before the day starts. Lay your day before the Lord. Focus on the Lord first. How many of us wake up with all kinds of things on our mind and hearts? We're racing as we wake up. Or even if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, don't go get ice cream. Don't watch TV. No, go to the word of God. And let the word of God speak to your heart. Basically, I think I've told this to you before. For me, when I wake up at 3 in the morning with anxiety, the first thing I do is I begin praying for people. Now, I'm not asleep after that. It's to the word. Because there's two things I know. If God wants to speak to me, I'm going to stay up. And God's going to speak to me through his word. If it's Satan, once I start reading the word, I'm going to go to sleep. And that's what happens. I want to encourage you. Walk by faith. Spend time alone with him. Know that he's with you in the storm. Know that he is the God of compassion. That he is the bread of life who loves us. That he laid down his life for us. 
That's how we approach the table this morning. Worship team can come forward. That's how we approach the table this morning.